Hello, and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, E.J. Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tour of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organizations and ultimately decide how to fund them. And today's person in philanthropy is Julie Schaefer Davis. I gotta make sure I get that right because it's a, a new name for me. I've known Julie as Julie Schaefer for such a long time, and we're now reconnecting after she's been married. So welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, EJ. It's great to be with you. Likewise, and congratulations officially. So everyone knows I'm wishing you congratulations on your you. recent wedding. Uh, recent <laughs> Thank enough. you. Uh, tell us about yourself as well as the foundation, which I failed to mention. <laughs> no problem. So uh, currently, I am the head of what's called Impact Solutions at BNP Paribas Bank of the West. And uh, Impact Solutions, what that really means is um, I, in, in a team across North America, we work with individuals, families, companies that aim to be more efficient and more impactful with their dollars. And that can mean either philanthropic dollars or for-profit dollars. The interesting thing to me and, and how I came to this um, really started way back when in California where I grew up. Um, and I, I, at the time, I was leading a large family private foundation in Silicon Valley. And I recognized that while philanthropy is so critical here in the U.S. Uh, for many reasons, um, I, I was troubled by the fact that philanthropic dollars can't solve everything. And I thought there had to be a better way. But at that time... Um, there really wasn't a better way. Um, what we call impact investing or purpose-driven investing really meant concessionary returns at that time. And, and that was simply not, a, a, it was not an option. But as this whole space has developed, what I've begun doing is really focusing on what I call the money in the middle. And when you think about deploying your dollars every day, we might go out, although now times are a little different, but you might go out and you buy a cup of coffee or maybe you'll make a donation to your local charity or you might even decide to invest in a private equity opportunity. Each of those dollars that you deploy have a return, have some sort of impact and have some sort of return. So my uh, real work lies in why do we have to separate doing well and doing good? Uh, we should be able to blend the two and, and be even more forceful. And it's, it's really exciting doing this with BNP Paribas Bank of the West. They're the seventh largest private bank in the world and really a leader in sustainable finance and uh, energy transition. Now, when we first met, it was actually one of the very first introductions I had at the beginning of my own work in philanthropy. And even then I noticed just the dedication that you had mostly to what was going to be best for the nonprofit and the grantees. How has that informed you over the course of the years at the point now you're at one of the largest banks and foundations uh, in the world? You know, I think it's always important to think, to, to look at the end goal, right? And the end goal is really to serve that nonprofit. Nothing else really matters. We can't come in as donors and tell that nonprofit how they should act, how they should run their business, how they should serve their clientele. I think it, it's just critical to be 
incredibly sensitive and supportive uh, to the cause and to the organization that that you are uh, supporting with your dollars. That doesn't mean you can't have a great and frank, which you should, of course, uh, communication and relationship. But there, I, I just think that it's frightening to me for a donor or a foundation uh, to come in and feel like they can uh, take over in some way and lead that that effort. How do you strike that balance between what knowledge you can impart and how much you want the nonprofit to feel like they have a lead in a conversation as well? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really important because, you know, everybody's heard that old saying, right? It teach a man to fish and et cetera, et cetera. I think it really comes from building a, a very transparent relationship on both sides. And, and that is a very hard thing to do without building trust, uh, again, on both sides. The nonprofit has to feel comfortable enough to open up its books, you know, pull back the curtain, be really honest about what works and what doesn't. And the donor, um, whether it's an individual or a foundation, has to be really clear about what they're expecting and come to some meeting ground. You know, it's just like like any other relationship, there's give and take, but it, it really, the basis is, is trust and transparency. And for you specifically, now in the current role, before we start talking about, as you mentioned, current times, uh, I want to focus a bit more just on the current role. How do you feel about the responsibility of bringing the right kind of nonprofits to basically a portfolio of donors. It's not necessarily just one donor that you're speaking with. It normally is, it could be multiple donors that you're meant to be representing. Exactly. So um, in my role, you know, I try and be as agnostic as possible. And what I mean by that is it's not my place when I'm working with clients to, um, to lead them to a particular nonprofit or a particular cause or effort. Uh, my, my first and foremost role is to have their needs met. And that means that how can I help them be most impactful and most efficient with their dollars? So if they decide um, that they want to, let's just say, uh, do something around clean water, um, it's my job to be as professional in doing the due diligence around what really fits for them. And the fit could mean many different things from dollar amount to geography to the type of effort. You know, do these donors want to get on involved on the ground? Do they want a board seat? Um, do they want to be completely anonymous? Um, it, and, and where do they want to fall into that chain of impact? So I look at myself really um, in some ways as a matchmaker and a translator, because on the other side, uh, the, the bank and, and their grant making, um, it's, they have very strict criteria. So it's like putting a puzzle together. There are all these pieces that you're, you're trying to fit together and, and have a, a good, effective outcome. Now, you mentioned criteria there, and I think that that's something that we always sort of struggle with when we talk to nonprofits about outreach and, and engaging donors. Sometimes they see, okay, they funded this person and that person, and we do sort of similar things, but they don't recognize that sometimes criteria is not met. How do you sort of bridge that gap with nonprofits who may not be able to see immediately or necessarily on your website 
that there might be some sort of issues there or roadblocks for them to, to make a partnership? That's a really tough conversation. I mean, nine times out of 10, the nonprofits that I'm working with, meeting with, are doing extremely good work. And, and they're led by amazing, passionate people. And they have great outcomes. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a fit for the donor. And, and to be able to, to have that kind of tough love conversation is not a pleasant part of the job because sometimes it's, it's, it's nuanced. Sometimes there's just one small thing that may not fit. And for whatever reason, that donor or that charitable um, foundation is, is not comfortable, you know, stretching in that way. What I try to do, if, if we can't make that fit, is to, to make suggestions about other places to go. There, there may be other foundations or, or other donors that maybe would, would be a better match. And, and I will do everything I can to try and make that happen. So I, I did mention a little bit, and you did as well, about current times. And we are having this, this conversation during the time of the coronavirus where basically the entire world has either been shut or paused, at least. And especially for the nonprofit sector and even the philanthropic sector, there's just been so much damage done that was un- unintended. How are you looking at the coronavirus through the philanthropic lens at, at your foundation? You know, um, believe it or not, and, and really I'm not a, a crazy Pollyanna person, but I really do think that in times of crisis like this, it, we are presented with great opportunities. I mean, just, I think the last count, um, there was $10.4 billion uh, funneled in uh, to nonprofits uh, as of last week uh, around the pandemic. That's a That's a wonderful thing. I think that this is a real opportunity for us to look at systems change, which which within the nonprofit sector and uh, within uh, philanthropy itself. And, and we know that systems change leads to behavioral change. And so what I mean by that is if we've clearly identified the fissures in, in our society uh, that need to be fixed, but there are issues around getting the, the, the resources flowing to these. So what I've been trying to do in the past, I'd say, six or eight weeks, I'm, I'm sitting on several different teams and councils and committees now to look at everything from the financial sector systemic change. What do we need to be better stewards of, of our community? Do we need better, better vehicles? You know, do we need better investment products? Do we need better charitable vehicles? And then all the way down that chain to what can we do as, as nonprofits? Um, I think, it, and, and this may be a, a not politically correct thing to say, but it's really important for nonprofits to not duplicate their efforts. And so oftentimes I will go into a community or a state, um, and there are a number of organizations that are doing exactly the same thing or close to the same thing, and they're all fighting for the same finite dollars. We, we need to get better at, at being more efficient in, in those systems. And then I think with, with donors themselves, whether they are individuals or a foundation, they need to think more about why do I have to be held to a 5% payout 
in these times of such great need, let's the, those dollars are already um, donated to charity. They're they're held in a charitable vehicle. So let's use it. Uh, the same thing goes with a donor advised fund. Um, I know that you know the 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 rules are that you can hold those dollars in that donor advice fund for quite some time uh, without tapping into it. Um, but I think now more than ever, we need to release this capital and we need to get it into um, new systems uh, to make the community stronger and healthier. I, I know that nonprofits at the moment normally can be desperate in, <laughs> in the best of times, but in coronavirus times, I think that the desperation is probably reaching a fever pitch. What's your advice for nonprofits when they're feeling such desperation in these times? You mentioned oh. not duplicating efforts. Of course, that's I think that's great advice there. But in terms of, like you said, there's been so much money funneled to, for the most part, larger uh, nonprofits and larger NGOs. How about those smaller ones on the ground? What's your advice for the ones that are maybe are off the radar of the big donors and even the mid-range mm-hmm. donors? Mm-hmm. I, I think this is, it, and it just, it's heartbreaking to me because this is a very, very difficult time for that, that type of, of nonprofit. I think, you know, look, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? The, the best thing that, that could happen is the nonprofits have established themselves with some sense of sustainability, you know, preparing for that rainy day or some crisis that might happen. So they can, they can kind of limp along, you know, through this pandemic. I think the problem is uh, much more acute for those nonprofits that have have not thought about, you know, a long-term kind of resource safety net. And and the thing I think that, that the only thing really for them to do right now besides just hang on is to to make a very clear case to their grassroots funders. Um, that in order for them to continue serving their community, they need support now more than ever. It's not pretty. It's not easy. You know, people are focused on a, on a bigger picture right now. Donors are focused and, and rightly so. But if that donor has the wherewithal to, to stretch a little bit more, you know, give till it hurts is really the, the theme that we should be here, you know, saying right now as donors, um, because we're going to need those community institution, institutions as much as we need, you know, the bigger health uh, campaigns as well. Before we get into the, the virtual tour, I'd love for you to sort of shamelessly plug something. I'm not sure if there's one or two or a few things that you'd like the, the listeners to know about. You know, I think what, what, and this, this has really come out of my own, um, learning journey as working in this sector for, for a number of years now. Small things are important. And an example of that is the stance that BMP Bank of the West has taken on energy transition. I talk to people every single day who are so passionate about stopping climate change and they wonder what they can do. And in in all honesty, thinking about where you bank makes a difference because where your mortgage sits, where your checking account sits, where you get project finance, all of those things, when that cash is sitting in a financial institution, most of the time it's being used to fund fossil fuel. Uh, at BNP Bank of the West, we do not use it to fund fossil fuel, and we have a very clear stance on that. So 
I feel um, that if more people understood the options that they have in their day-to-day life, that people can really affect systemic change. And, and it's exciting to know that you actually do have options. And before I move on from that, I think that most people, I would say, within the nonprofit sector or even discerning individuals would know the damage of fossil fuels. But for the people who are not aware, what is something you'd like them to know about why that's important in the stance that you have at BNP, Paribas, Bank of West? Well, I think you can look at it from, from two a pretty interesting angles. One is, is simply from risk mitigation. And, you know, for all the, the finance of folks out there that always are looking at risk in an investment, uh, BNP decided to uh, begin divestment from fossil fuel holdings a long time ago. And that was strictly from a risk mitigation standpoint. And that that means that all those assets that are sitting under the ground, all that oil and natural gas, will not be there forever. And BNP thought, this is I, I don't want to have stranded assets on my on my balance sheet. We think that in the long term, that's going to be a real di- disaster financially. And interestingly enough, in the last few months, we've actually seen that play out. So when you're talking just from a financial standpoint, folks that did had had less holdings in their portfolio, less fossil fuel holdings, actually have done much better through this volatile market. And then on the other side, when we're thinking about how do we keep our, our earth healthy and, and our children's earth healthy, um, it, it, it's a pretty clear uh, case to be made that we simply can't continue on with these uh, severe weather patterns and severe pandemics and severe loss of life, um, all generated by uh, changes in our natural world. This is something that we need to pay attention to. And we can see the COVID virus. We see it daily happening. Climate change is a slow drip drip. And I'm worried that people don't see it because it's just so slow, um, but it's going to hit us uh, very hard eventually, and we really do need to be prepared. Well, as an environmentalist, I couldn't resist the opportunity to have you plug that a little bit more <laughs> for my own benefit <laughs> as well as for the listeners out there. And without any further ado, we're going to go into the virtual tour. And um, I'm asking you to do a bit of double duty, more than I do for other people who do the tours, just to talk about and you can do it obviously in any way you'd like, about what it's like for a nonprofit who's heard about your foundation, heard about you, and wants to get in contact. How would they contact you? How would they Mm -hmm. reach out to you? How would they basically become on your radar as well as possibly become a grantee? But also, I'm also also asking you to look at this in the time of the age of COVID and to see Mm -hmm. how the people who are looking at your portfolio and saying, okay, Maybe there might be some funding for us that's COVID-related. So I know I'm asking you to right. do two things, but because I've known you so long, I don't feel as bad. No problem. Oh, I understand. And so, so let's start with um, how, you know, any financial institution, I think not just BNP Bank of the West, I think all of us are, are very similar. So when you are going as a, as a nonprofit and, and you, you've looked at the bank's website, hopefully, <laughs> first, and and you really think that you have a case to be made for, for the fit. Um, first and foremost, you've got to follow the, the instructions that are on the website. 
um, trying to go around those. It, it, it's not that I don't want to hear from you or, or get a direct email or phone call. I love talking to nonprofits and learning uh, what's happening, all the great things that are happening out there in the world. The problem is a financial institution has to adhere by a very strict process. I mean, those are laws and rules and compliance, regulation. It's incredibly complicated. So that's first and foremost. So let's say you, you've looked at the website, you've decided that you've got a really good shot, you're a good fit, you're going to apply um, online and, and follow, you know, check all the boxes and, and follow that up. Once that's been done, I would love to hear from you and, and you can, you can call me up, you can email me and you can say, I've done all of this. What happens next? And, and then we, we can talk about it and, and I can let you know what happens with the process. It's, it is as financial institutions tend to do. It's, it's quite drawn out. We have two separate programs, one in Europe and one in North America, um, but they're run fairly similarly. It, and what we do is we put together um, a very neutral uh, grant review committee of different um, different folks from all over that can read all the uh, grant requests and then come back to the bank with their recommendations. So it's all very, very neutral. It's very transparent. Obviously, as a financial institution, it, it must be that way. On the other hand, I always want to know what solutions are happening out in uh, the world because I never know what client is going to come to me and say, hey, I took a trip and I'm really interested in helping schools in Peru or whatever it may be. So I love hearing about what's going on in the world, and the best way to do that is reach out to me via email and let's find a time to talk. And then I, I file these so that when I do have a client who's interested in schooling in Peru, I, I think I've already got a connection there. On the other hand, what I can also do, for example, I had a client that was interested in healthcare, um, supporting healthcare in a particular country in Asia so I, I'm able to work with my colleague who sits in Singapore and have her vet uh, organizations there. So lot, a, a big reach, and it you know it you can never stop learning because there's so many opportunities out there. And then for the COVID side, from the COVID side, so the bank obviously has been it's so involved in PPP um, and getting that out. Um, we, we pushed out it was close to $40 million in 10 days. So that, that was incredibly successful and I was really proud. And then from the headquarters in Paris, they have established a, a $50 million COVID relief fund as well. So that is is another fund going to uh, for-profit uh, small businesses. When somebody is actually in your pipeline and they're getting the emails from you and they're calling you and they, they're, in, they're on the radar that you've got there, what are some of the things that they should know to be doing to become a possible grantee to an actual grantee? So the one requirement of the bank um, that, again, I don't think is unusual, but you do need to have an internal advocate, someone other than me. 
And so that's really helpful. Um, you know, it, it can be your teller, you know, at your, at your retail branch. And anyone within the, the bank can, can be an advocate. And that, that makes a, a big difference. Simply uh, paying attention to your grant submission, checking it more than once. Uh, for typos and accurate information and grammatical errors. I know this sounds so simplistic, but I can't tell you what a difference it makes when you read um, a grant request that really shines, that shows that people have really taken the time and, and thought this out uh, very well and made a really strong case of how you fit into the bank's uh, criteria. So taking that uh, extra time and effort to to present as well as you possibly can. I mean, think about it. You know, if you're going for a job interview, um, your application and your presentation, you want it just to be spot on. And the same applies to a grant application. Now, we're moving over to the section of mistaken identity. And I've got so many ideas of how that might affect you based on just <laughs> knowing you for so long, but also the current role that you have is with working with so many different types of donors, as well as the institutional structural donor of the bank. What happens when someone comes in front of you and actually mistakes you for either one of those donors or someone that's uh, sort of an absolute decision maker, where if they get their presentation in front of you, you, you made your, wave your magic wand and money right. appears. Uh, <laughs> Believe you... me, don't I wish. You know, <laughs> I, I usually start the conversation, I mean, immediately with, with clarifying, you know, what my role is, how I can help. Um, I am not, you know, the holder of the purse strings. So that, that's after my name, that's usually the first thing out of my mouth. Easy to manage that. And what advice do you normally give those organizations? to organizations when they, that, when they come to you and they say, oh, can you fund this? And you say, well, no, 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 let me explain to you what my role is. Do you just sort of give them that clarification and hope that's enough? Or do you normally or usually some way actually guide them to another area? Well, it, it really, it depends on what they need. But first, first and foremost, I, I clarify uh, my role and what I can and cannot do uh, to help them. But if, if, if I can put them in direct contact with, with maybe another funder or another part of the, the bank organization that could be more helpful to them, I absolutely do that, right? But I think that what's really important is them understanding my role and how um, I have to remain, you know, like Switzerland and I can't, I can't push one nonprofit over another in the grant-making process. What are some do's and don'ts that you would give to nonprofits in terms of how they might reach out to your foundation? Um, I think I think a, a nonprofit needs to be really honest with themselves. Are we really a fit, or are we just trying to squeeze ourselves into this hole because we really, really, you know, need um, this funding? I, I, that is just so critical. The second is. Uh, to really pay attention to the process and the information that uh, that is being asked for, um, you you just can't cut corners on that. So those are those are two big don'ts. I think the do's are you know certainly reach out, but but also uh, be cautious that all of us are are super busy, and it's not that we don't want to help, but 
we, we really can't deal with, you know, a phone call a week or an email a week um, as we're going through this six-month uh, review process. Know that, you, that, you know, your grant application is being looked at on a level playing field, and we're doing, you know, the most that we can to get everyone some type of support. So I think, you know, just do follow, follow the guidelines and be as thorough as possible. Are there any experiences you'd like to share? You know, um, there have been so many experiences over the years, but one that, that makes me sad, really, dealing with a, a nonprofit that I was a big fan of. This is when I was working, uh, leading the foundation back in Silicon Valley, and great organization, um, had been in, in the Bay Area for many years. You know, I presented uh, to the foundation board of quite a sizable uh, multi-year grant for this organization, and there there was no reason that this would not be a successful partnership. I mean, certainly that I could see um, after doing the due diligence. But sure enough, about um, three months after uh, cutting a, quite a large check to this nonprofit, they closed and the money was gone. Everyone always thinks that philanthropy is, is, you know, bright and shiny and everything's good and pretty. It's like anything else. There are ups and downs and things work and they don't work. And sadly, I, I think that if this nonprofit would have been more transparent, maybe we could have worked together to uh, solve, obviously, their, their big challenges. On the upside, however, there have been so many. There are countless uh, clients that I had. I was working with a woman a donor who was just beginning in her philanthropy. She had inherited a considerable amount of wealth and she was kind of at a loss for what to do. Um, I worked with her for many years and it was, it was really satisfying for both her and myself. And I got a call out of the blue one day from her husband who, who thanked me and who said, you know, you have just made her, a happier person. I mean, she's found her purpose and she feels, you know, that she's really uh, able to give back in such a meaningful way. And that, there's nothing better than that. Now, I've asked you so many questions from this side. I'm now going to bombard you with questions from other people. Well, actually, the first question comes from someone else, but it also comes from my book. Now, you've actually already sort of touched upon this question a bit, so it might be easier for you to answer. But how do you learn about small and new organizations that aren't in your network or haven't built up a reputation yet, especially those in contacts far from your base of uh, operations. Do mm-hmm. you worry that you're making you know, those organizations more visible to you at the expense of others? It always is a concern to me. I, you know, I must get, I'd say anywhere from three to five new leads a day. Normally they're coming from colleagues that have uh, because, look, I do the same thing. If I find something that I think is really important and stands out in some way it, it, in terms of solving a, a problem, um, I absolutely share that with colleagues. So there's kind of this cycle that goes around, I think, between all of us in the sectors, and that's really great. But that's not saying that there are a lot of good organizations out there that are not getting that primetime play. That is tough. I, you know, because they don't want to spend money on, on marketing and PR, they're usually stretched very thin. But what I found um, that works, you know, in this modern world 
is having a story and really getting it out there on social media and, and having that picked up. I mean, you'd be shocked at, at how many views and how much something like that can be passed around. And it doesn't cost, you know, virtually anything to shoot a really cool brief video um, about your organization, your solution. So that's, that's what I would recommend. Second question, coming from a nonprofit familiar with your foundation. If you're allocating funds from your normal portfolio to address current COVID-19 specific needs, how will you decide which projects will be divested to compensate for the allocation? Yeah, it's like, you know, Sophie's choice, right? Um, so my answer to this, and this is not necessarily what the, the leadership would choose, although I have to say they are, they are doing that, this now in the pandemic, but whenever a foundation or donor is, is faced with this sort of problem, my feeling is then dip into the endowment. This is not the time to say we're only going to give 5%. This is the time to give till it hurts and stay as steady as you possibly can with your normal portfolio of grantees. You can, you can rejigger later after the pen, the crisis, whatever it is has passed, has passed hopefully. But for now, give. It, it, as, as I, as I said before, these dollars are already designated for charity. There is no reason for them to sit there when the need is so great. I think just open it up, whether it's a donor advice fund or a foundation endowment, it needs to be, be opened up and look with the right investment approach, hopefully long-term, uh, you can grow that endowment back and um, be right where you started again. I'm thinking when you say give to let hurts of me as a child when I had a splinter and the idea of pulling the, the splinter up myself, <laughs> the pain threshold was a lot higher than when I had my mum pull it out. So I think it's a, it's a matter of who's gauging that pain threshold. If the, the foundation themselves are thinking about giving to the hurts, it may be just giving that 5%. So who should be the judge of how much it should hurt? Well, you know, typically in these situations, there's there's a board involved. So it has to be be consensus, and it's a lot of, of diverse diverse views. So that's from the the bank standpoint. Uh, from a, a private foundation or a donor advice fund, you know, I'm sure people have diverse views as well because you've got other generations and lots of different different ideas of how that money should be dispersed. But I think again, you know, kind of going back to where we started the conversation and and this idea of trust. And this idea of transparency uh, is really critical. And, and overlay those conversations with the just dramatic need that we have right now. I think if people really look hard at this, uh, to me, the, the answer is, is quite clear. But, you know, in, in foundations, it's, it's a board decision. What is something nonprofits should know about corporate foundations from the banking sector like yours, especially in how they prefer to be engaged? I would say that they are, um, they are difficult. And they're not difficult purposefully. They're difficult because of the structure of the corporation. And there's nothing that can be done about that right now. <laughs> the I had no idea when I was on the nonprofit side and now I'm on the corporate side, 
I had no idea the level of compliance and risk and regulation that every corporation has to adhere to. It's mind-boggling. So all I can say is go in knowing that they're incredibly difficult, they're incredibly rigid, they're trying to do the best they can, and, and they're trying to do the best they can in many different ways, not only through corporate philanthropy, but through their community reinvestment access. CRA credits are really important to financial institutions. And then there are, there's so much going on around corporate social responsibility. And for those corporates, corporates that are really doing a good job and not just greenwashing their CSR programs, this is, this is a phenomenal sort of trend in, in the corporate world that I think it will not go away. So corporates, you know, I used to be the one bashing them and they were the bad guy. Now I'm realizing, you know, there, it, there's a real gray area here. Their hands are tied by government regulation. And I'm going to get you out on one last question, which is about the future, which I know seems a bit ominous or maybe auspicious. It depends on your, your point of view. What is something you would like philanthropy as a whole to eradicate or cure in your lifetime? Um, I, I look at that um, from two different ways. One is is my, my personal um, issue is I really have a thing about food waste. And maybe it's because I'm from an Italian family. I don't know. But I just can't bear the fact that we are such a wealthy country, that the United States is such a wealthy country, and we have people going hungry at night. I cannot accept that. And that is something that, that needs to change. On the, on the other side, maybe more, more practical or, or process-oriented side, um, I think that there needs to be a common app. I feel for nonprofits because there's so much work, so much time that goes into these applications. Um, and, you know, they, have, they came out with years ago a common app for university. Um, we should have a common app as well. And, of course, you could add, you know, a, appendix and, and all of that. But, but we need to simplify this for nonprofits. It's simply not right for them to uh, use their very scarce resources on write, rewriting the Bible to get $10,000 or something. It's, it's, I, I just think that's, that's a problem. It's so funny you mentioned this just because I'm actually helping a friend who's running a nonprofit and it's quite early days for the nonprofit. So I said, I, of course, I would help. And their application is actually <laughs> to a French, organ, uh, French uh, donor. It's about 75 pages. Oh. And the the amount is about let me anonymize it a bit between ten and fifteen thousand dollars. And I just said I can't imagine that you think you have enough time for this for such a. I mean, it's a significant amount, but it's not a significant amount <laughs> to pay for right. something significant right. within their, their their organization. And I, yeah. I just think I cannot believe that this has been approved. That they expect because I can't even imagine reading seventy five pages from each applicant. But you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. But I think if we could get a groundswell of both funders and nonprofits together, um, that that's something that can be changed. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing for the nonprofit sector, within the donor sector, and just in general. It's great to hear from you again. And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, EJ. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Julie Schaefer-Davids now. Have a wonderful day and thank you for listening.